I'm constantly amazed at the word economy of Paul in his letters, especially uh, his letters that he writes to pastors or the pastoral epistles. And what I mean by word economy is just the efficiency uh, and poignancy of his, wor- of his words that he writes. His, his letters are so short, but they're packed with so much wisdom. I don't think I've often been accused of uh, having great word economy. I, uh, I use a lot of words to make a small point. Uh, but I want to get better at this. Uh, but I'm just amazed when I look at these letters and I see how short they are in the length of a blog post, how much wisdom is packed in. Now, these are no ordinary letters. They are God's word. Uh, Paul wrote uh, what we're looking at this morning, the letter of Titus to a pastor named Titus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not uh, Paul's um, gift all on his own of just being a man of brevity. But still, it's fascinating to look at the length of these letters and see what is and even what is not emphasized. It's like you probably know someone who you would describe as a person of few words. You know, that guy's a man of few words. And maybe that's just because they have nothing good to say. But I know I can think of many people who, in the context of a group discussion, they don't say much, but the second they open their mouth, there's just pure gold that comes. I think that's uh, what we need to be thinking about as we read these short letters. Paul is a man of few words, uh, but these few words are packed with wisdom. And as we look at the pastoral epistles, or again, the letters that are written to pastors in the Bible, which are uh, the two letters to Timothy that Paul writes to Timothy and the one that we're looking at this morning, which is the letter to Titus, it is, and maybe I'm overstating it, but I, I think it's genuinely shocking to look at these letters and see how frequently the content of these letters is about controversy, conflict, or false teaching. Controversy, conflict, and false teaching. Even looking at Titus alone. This morning we're going to be looking at seven verses. Chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. Seven verses, and then, uh, which deal with this topic of false teaching. About false doctrine. And then later in the letter to Titus, we get three more verses in chapter 3 that talk about uh, this kind of false teaching, those who stir up division and controversy. So that's a total, just my math here, 10 verses out of, uh, I'm not going to do a percentage, the math was me adding 7 plus 3, 10 verses out of 46 verses. This is only 46 verses long, and 10 of those are dealing with this false teaching and division because of it. That's an interesting and notable thing to see the emphasis that we see. And as we look at both this false teaching as well as uh, other passages that commend positive teaching or healthy teaching or what uh, Paul uses the phrase sound doctrine, I want you to really put a pin in that in your mind because that phrase sound doctrine is not a word that we would use constantly in our day-to-day life. Uh, We use it a lot in the church, but it is a a word that gets used a lot in this letter. And so we're going to come up to it again and again and again. Uh, And it's a word that should matter very much to us as a church. Sound doctrine. I should should say two words. So sound doctrine, uh, your Bibles may translate sound as healthy. Or maybe like uh, my Bible, it has a little footnote with an alternative translation that says, or healthy. So healthy. And then doctrine is, is teaching. It's instruction. So sound teaching is healthy, or sound doctrine is healthy teaching, healthy instruction. 
So I want you to remember that. Sound doctrine. But our passage this morning, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, is actually the opposite. It is not about sound doctrine. It's about false doctrine. It's about false teaching and false teachers. It is the opposite of what the, the message is from the rest of this letter. And the message of this letter and why we've called, uh, titled this series is how to be a healthy church and why it matters. How to be a healthy church and why it matters. We see that false teaching, when it's ignored, it does the opposite of build up a healthy church. It creates a diseased church. False teaching can be deadly to the church. And if we as a church fail to address false teaching in our church, or if we as churches fail to address false teaching in our churches, we practice medical malpractice. We do the opposite of what we should be doing when we're seeking to be healthy. Now, I want to be careful because we have some healthcare professionals in uh, the group here, and so I don't want to insult you. Uh, I love you, and I'm very thankful for all that you do. And there's more than a million surgeries, I googled it, that happen in Canada every year. So there's a lot of surgeries, so this is statistically very low. But I was shocked when I heard that hundreds of surgeries every year, uh, the medical instruments are left in the patient. It's shocking, right? Now, again, a million, a couple hundred, statistically, have a lot of faith in the healthcare system. But it is shocking. That is medical malpractice. And whether that happens just because, oh, I missed, I forgot, I didn't notice that I left it in there, I hope that's what it is, or whether it's just, it's not likely not malicious, but it's, it's just willful ignorance. It's, it's uh, just moving on quickly through the surgery and leaving something in the person. That's a horrible thing that could happen. But that's exactly what happens in the church when we fail to address false teaching. Maybe we're just ignorant. We're saying, oh, that would never happen to us. And so we fail to pay attention to these stern warnings about false teaching. Or maybe we know that this false teaching is there, but we think, ah, what's, what's the harm? And so we practice medical malpractice in our mission to be healthy as a church. The church needs the medicine of the gospel. It needs the elixir of sound doctrine. It doesn't need the poison that false teaching is. False teaching is like an IV of, you know, a deadly bacterial culture straight into the veins of a church. And so it's not a fun topic, I admit. It's not a fun topic, but it is critically important. Now, our big idea this morning from Titus 1, verses 10 to 16, is to protect the church, false teachers must be silenced. To protect the church, false teachers must be silenced. And I want to warn you, the false teaching that we're going to see that was happening in Crete in the first century is not likely teaching that you are going to run into. This exact false doctrine that is uh, on display in Crete is, is likely not a problem for you. But false teaching certainly is a problem for churches today. Because we want to be able to answer the question, how can we be a healthy church? And so on our journey to answer that question, how can we be a healthy church, I want you to be able to answer three questions this morning about false teaching. Three questions. The first is uh, knowing what false teaching is. The second, how to identify false teachers. And the third, what to do about false teachers. So you'll see those three questions in your bulletin as uh, our three points as we walk through the text this morning. But three questions. What is false teaching? How to identify false teachers? And what to do about false teachers? 
So would you, if, as you're able, stand with me as I read God's holy and true word uh, for us this morning. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. So our first question, what is false teaching? What is false teaching? We get this answer implicitly through the text in a number of different ways. But the simplest way I would answer that question uh, maybe feels like a bit of a cop-out. But it's, I would answer, what is false teaching? It's anything but the gospel. Anything but the gospel. Now, the gospel, the word gospel, literally means good news. If you've been a part of this church for any length of time, you hear us talk about that every single week. The gospel means good news. But whether you've heard this every week uh, from childhood to where you are now, we need to be constantly reminded that the gospel is good news. Think about those words, good news. And it's good news because... The sin in our lives, the rebellion that we all have uh, committed against God every time we lie, every time we cheat, every time we steal, every time we do uh, almost anything, there is selfish motivation that is rebellion against God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is perfect and holy. And so our sin creates a, a divide between us and God. We cannot coexist with a God who is just and holy. So that's bad news. Okay, we talked about good news. That is bad news. But the good news is that God doesn't just wave his finger at us. Uh, he doesn't just say, you know, be done with them. He made a way that we could be made right with him. That's why we say we are a gospel church. We believe in good news. That is good news. That through what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose again, he defeated death. He took the punishment that we deserve. So that is the good news. And the good news is that then we can be seen as righteous because Jesus never sinned. So what he did when he died on the cross is for all who would turn from their sin and trust in him for salvation, he, he traded places. He subbed out. He said, put me in, coach. And he go, went in and took the punishment of our sin so that we could be credited with his righteousness. And that is good news. And so what is false teaching? Well, it is anything but that good news. Because there's no other way to know peace with God apart from the gospel, apart from that good news. That Jesus is the only way. And so the gospel is full of hope. 
It is full of hope. But we see that this empty teaching, the way the, uh, false, uh, the false teachers are described is, is being empty teachers. They're empty talkers. The gospel is full of power and hope, but this false teaching is empty of power and hope. Because as soon as we add or subtract from the gospel, you lose all hope. As soon as you add or subtract from the gospel, you lose all hope. And so we can look first at what this teaching was going on in Crete. Paul doesn't lay it out explicitly, but we get a lot of clues through the text that help us to see what this false teaching was all about. Uh, the first that we see is uh, this reference. I mean, it's, he says they, there were many who are insubordinate. So we see that there's, this is a big problem here in Crete. And he says, especially those of the circumcision party. And so what he means by the circumcision party is not you know, a terrible party that you might have in mind. It's, it's a group of people who profess to be Christians, Jewish Christians, who, who profess to know God, but we see later deny him by their works. And so this circumcision party is, uh, we can see already the, the Jewish influence to this group of people. Then a few verses later, we see that there's Jewish myths that are being propagated. We see that in verse 14. Uh, a few verses later, then we see this talk about things that are pure and things that are defiled, things that are clean and things that are unclean. And then later in Titus, in chapter 3, verses 9, we see another one, just to, again, dip our toes into, to, to glean the clues that we can. It says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And so we kind of have dipped in a couple different places, and from that we can gather that what is being uh, propagated here, these Jewish myths, are likely something to do with uh, these, these works of the law that they are adding to the gospel. They are saying you need to do these things to be made right with God. That the gospel is that we need to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. That's it. And that's a big thing, but there's not a ritual that's associated with that. There's not a, a, another box you need to tick about being good enough. But what, what these false teachers were saying, and we get this too from other pastoral epistles, is they were likely saying things like, if you marry that person, or if you spend time with those kinds of people, or if you eat certain things, no salvation for you. That's damnable. And so they are adding to the gospel. This is called legalism. We see that's what the Pharisees do, and what Jesus you know, vehemently condemns throughout his life and ministry. They are adding to the gospel. And this is so, so dangerous. Because legalism is not good news. Because legalism says you do enough and you'll be saved. If your works are good enough, you'll be saved. But the Bible says, and we know in our hearts, we are not good enough. We cannot earn our salvation through good works. Even our best good works are like filthy rags. And so that is not good news. So even if you might think, hey, the gospel is good news. If you add it, it's only going to be better news. Well, that, no, that's not how it works. Because the gospel is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's a concise way of, of talking about the hope that we have in the gospel. Exactly what I talked about, that our sin has created a separation between us and God, but by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus who paid the penalty for our sin, who rose from the dead, we could be made right with God. That's the hope of the gospel. We are, uh, the gospel is a message of grace. 
Uh, kids, we use the word grace a lot, uh, but I think it's one of those words we often forget what we're talking about. Grace. I mean, it's in the middle of our church name, Heritage Grace Church. What is grace? Well, grace is receiving a gift that we don't deserve. And that's an important thing to remember, that we are saved by grace alone. It's a gift that we don't deserve. Legalism says you do enough, you deserve it, you'll be saved. The gospel is that we don't deserve it, but Jesus did it for us. We are saved by grace alone because conditional grace is not good news. Conditional grace is not good news because we're not good enough. We see, too, that this gospel, this good news, is uniting, right? It's not for a certain ethnic group of people. The Bible is so explicitly clear on this. We see this thread uh, through the Bible, these promises that this is going to expand to all the nations. And then through the New Testament, it does expand to all the nations. The gospel is, by its nature, uniting. But the false gospel, we see in verse 11, it divides. It says, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. Now, upsetting families could specifically be talking about nuclear families that, that that in this false teaching it's even breaking up families that in the wake of this false teaching is division uh, but what the word is here is household and churches used to meet in households and so there is reason to believe that what paul is writing about here is it's it's churches that are being broken up and divided and more than even the word and the practical element maybe say hey, that feels like a bit of an overstep he's talking about households is that churches well the new testament talks about the church being a family we are adopted into God's family. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's more than a metaphor. We are very, really a family. And our individualistic culture is so contrary to that. We need to battle that as Christians. Because we hear messages and we think in our minds and our hearts that we want to be lone rangers. We want to be on our own. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me. We, we hate being uh, you know, lumped together. We want to be individuals. But the gospel doesn't, or the Bible doesn't talk about the church like that. It talks about the church as a family. It talks about the church as a, a building built up together. We are living stones in these, this building. It talks about the, the church being a body. But this false teaching is like the divorce that severs a family. It is like the wrecking ball that comes in and demolishes a house. And it's like the disease that works its way slowly but militantly through the body. The church is a family. The church is a body. The gospel is uniting. False teaching is dividing. And we see, too, that false teaching can change morals. That's what they're telling people to do. Be a better person. Do, do this, do this, tick this box, tick this box. But we see that it doesn't change their hearts. It says in, in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. These false gospels can change morals, but they don't change hearts. When you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. And it changes you. False teaching doesn't change you like that. We see that the false teaching is grounded in the commands of people in verse 14. That is powerless, the commands of people. But the power of God for salvation and the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in you, there's real hope, and the fruit of that is a changed life. False teaching leads to gospel professions, but not gospel-changed lives. 
And so again, false teaching, how do we identify it? It's when we add or subtract to the gospel. When we add to the gospel, we're saying it's salvation by works or by rituals or by traditions. And when we subtract the gospel, we don't see that in the text here, and so we spend less time talking about it, but to subtract from the gospel is saying that you can have salvation while you know, living in unrepentant sin, or that there's other ways to God apart from Christ. And so as soon as you start adding or subtracting to the gospel, that is not good news. It is empty. There's no power in it. False gospels destroy, they divide, and false gospels can't change hearts. But what about how to identify false teachers? How do we identify false teachers? Well, Paul gives Titus and us even clearer uh, descriptions of who these false teachers are. And so uh, let's answer that question, how to identify false teachers. Now, remember what came before this passage that we're looking at is the passage about qualifications for elders, uh, for those who, who would give leadership to the church. And verses 7 to 9 of chapter 1 says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it we'll see that as we worked through that passage we kind of went through a list of the qualifications you'll see that as how we identify false teachers is looking through a list of the disqualifications we're going to see much of the opposite of what we saw two weeks ago and so first we see insubordinate in verse 10 they are insubordinate they refuse to submit to authority and that authority being god's authority god's word God's word is clear about what the gospel is, yet they live and teach in a way that's contrary to that. They are insubordinate. And that's the opposite of what elders are called to do. They are to hold firm to the trustworthy word. They are to be men who submit to God's word. They're insubordinate. They're also empty talkers. And we considered the emptiness of false teaching. But empty talkers, we see this throughout the pastoral epistles as well. In 1 Timothy 1, this kind of empty talk is is called vain discussion. In 2 Timothy 2, it's irreverent babble. And here, empty talking. This is more than just wasted words. This is powerless, empty fluff. Because elders are to instruct with sound doctrine. False teachers instruct with empty talk. We see, too, that they are deceivers. In John chapter 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. That's bad company to be in. These false teachers are peddlers. They are heretics. They proclaim lies. It says in verse 14 again, they declare the commands of people who turn from the truth. Elders are to hold firm to the trustworthy word. False teachers are deceivers. And false teachers teach, it says, for shameful gain. They have wicked methods, their deceit, but they also have wicked motives. Whether that's financial or the currency of status or control. And we see this lived out in maybe the most uh, characteristic examples. Even in our culture today and in our world today, we see preachers like Kenneth Copeland or Joyce Meyer or Creflo Dollar or Joel Osteen. And we just have to look at their bank accounts. We just have to look at the way that they uh, live their life. And the fact that each of those people I named own private jets worth tens of millions of dollars. 
And we can see that they teach for shameful gain. And on a smaller scale, it's not just the private jet-toting preachers. We see other well-known preachers with belts and shoes and watches from Gucci or Louis Vuitton that are worth tens of thousands of dollars. And we, we don't bat an eye at it. We think, oh, they're, they're great. But you go into chapters or indigo and you go to the section marked Christian, I guarantee you'll see all these people's books. There is nothing Christian about being a con artist or a charlatan with an $80 million jet who gives out a powerless sermon that you can live your best life now by giving enough money and then you'll be blessed with health and wealth and prosperity. There's nothing Christian about that. An elder must not be greedy for gain. Yet false teachers teach for shameful gain. And then they profess to know God. You see this in verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. What does it look for your works to not deny the gospel? Well, we see that uh, later in this letter. In in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days with malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is a case study in a transformed heart of a changed life. That's what it means to be saved by grace alone. But these false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They may look and sound a lot like Christians. What this passage is looking at here is not uh, alternative religions, although that is something that we as churches need to be aware of and thinking about. What this is, is, is professing to be a Christian, professing to know God, but denying him by their works. And the more that these false teachers look like Christians, the more dangerous they are. Because you may be sitting here and be like, yep, I'm not going to fall for the private jet. But what about the person who went to a good seminary, who has an orthodox statement of faith on their website? But you look at their life, and, and their life denies the gospel. Their preaching is milky self-help with a dash of heresy. Like Their closeness to orthodoxy helps them sleep Uh, slip in undetected into the fold. And so this is Paul's point when he compares these false teachers to the Cretan culture around them. Again, we talked a few weeks ago ago about the the stereotypes of Cretan culture. That to to call someone a Cretan or or be, be like a Cretan was just synonymous with being a liar. And so Paul uses this as ammunition, this stereotype of the culture around them, Uh, to label these false teachers because they likely condemned publicly this Cretan culture and society. They likely looked at that disobedience and the secular wicked culture around them and thought that they were just so pious and proper. But Paul says, you're no different from them. You're no different. You profess to know God, but you deny him by your works. They're as bad as the stereotypes of the wicked society around them. They are a poison pill wrapped in a candy-coated exterior. We see that they are detestable. Detestable. That is a strong word. 
Maybe Paul had in his mind Proverbs 17, verses 15, which says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So he who justifies the wicked, so that's what we talk about subtracting from the gospel, who justifies the wicked, or what we might call, uh, if we had to give it a, a modern day label, the progressive gospel, liberal theology. He who justifies the wicked, who says, it's okay, you can keep sinning however you want. And he who condemns the righteous, so that's uh, adding to the gospel, what we see in the text here, or what we would call the prosperity gospel, Condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So they profess to know God. They're detestable. They're disobedient as well. Their actions display their hearts. They create this artificial obedience that they say you need to adhere to, yet they don't even obey Christ. And we see that this disobedience is the same thing that Paul uses to describe himself or any person before they become a Christian. So he's not even saying like, oh yeah, they're kind of like fringe Christians. He's saying no, they're not obedient. Their works deny their profession. And then finally, they are unfit for any good work. The elder qualifications are exactly those, qualifications. They qualify an elder to serve in the church in that way, that they are to be above reproach. We see that they're qualified based on their character. False teachers are the opposite. They are unqualified. They are unfit for any good work. Because the gospel makes us fit for good work. If we pick up where we left off in chapter 3, it says, The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So we see with only, only a few verses, again, excellent word economy, Paul gives us a lesson in identifying false teachers. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, that's a common expression, something we think about a lot, but think about the purpose of that. A wolf in sheep's clothing looks as much as they can like a sheep with the pure motive of getting in uh, to seek to kill and destroy. And so we need to be on guard, both as elders and as members of a church. And so what are we going to do? It's our third question. What to do about false teachers? And Paul is clear, but he doesn't get super specific. He's clear in verse 11. He says, they must be silenced. And in verse 13, rebuke them sharply. Remember our big idea from our passage. To protect the church, false teachers must be silenced. Because disease cannot be left to fester if we want to be a healthy church. And we see Paul lives this out in different ways at different times. But I think a really good example of this is in Galatians when he confronts Peter, the apostle. If you remember Peter in Acts, right, Peter preaches the first uh, Christian sermon and thousands of people are saved. And in that sermon, he talks about how the gospel is for all people. But then a few chapters later, we see he's a bit of a tough nut to crack. God has to really tell him over and over that the gospel is not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles too. And so, you know, he gets it. Then he goes and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius. 
It's an amazing story. But then we see later in Paul's life, and this is what's revealed in Galatians, that he, he drifts away from that profound, powerful truth that the gospel unites Jews and Gentiles. And he refuses to eat with the Gentiles. And so Paul hears about this, and he confronts Peter right to his face because the way he's living is undermining the gospel. Remember, this gospel that unites, this gospel that is no longer about nationality or, or ethnicity. And so he calls him out right to his face. He knows that this pervasive false teaching has, has swayed even the apostle Peter. And it sways, it says in Galatians 2, even Barnabas. Remember Barnabas, the son of encouragement. That guy's the man. He was even swayed by this false teaching. And so Paul rebukes. Why? Because their conduct was not in step with the gospel. And in Galatians 2.21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. To nullify is to invalidate or to make something meaningless. And so what he's saying as he's confronting Peter and he's confronting Barnabas and he's confronting these false teachers uh, who are influencing these men, he's saying this kind of living that you're doing nullifies the grace of God. It invalidates the gospel. If they believe this and if they live like this, it's as if Christ died for nothing. That's a powerful statement that he makes in Galatians 2.21. And it's a sobering warning for us that even the Apostle Peter and even Barnabas were swayed by these false teachings. And it too is a good example of this silencing and a sharp rebuke. Because Paul doesn't call them out to shame them. He doesn't call them out to uh, just call them names. The goal is that he would bring them back to a sound faith. That's what we see in Titus chapter 1. That they would return to a, a sound faith. The goal is to bring these people back. And so when rebuking, again, Paul doesn't just go on a, a, a tirade against Peter about just what a dope he is. What does he do? Well, he goes to the gospel. He goes to the gospel. In Galatians 2, right after he's talking about uh, confronting Peter, we see in Galatians 2, verses 16 to 21, it says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That is the content of a godly rebuke. He confronts Peter and Barnabas and those who were teaching these false doctrines that were influencing them, he confronts them not with name-calling, not with an insult. He confronts them with the gospel. He confronts them with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is the comforting balm on the, on the wound that is here. 
But you'll hear some people, and maybe you think this this morning, will say we should move away from doctrine. We should move away from this kind of rigidity. Doctrine divides. Well, not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, sound doctrine builds up the church. Now again, used wrongly, of course. Used by wicked men, of course. But sound doctrine builds up the church. Remember, sound is healthy. And so look at what sandwiches our passage in Titus. Look at what the two pieces of bread or the two Oreo cookies uh, on the other side of the substance of our passage, verses 10 to 16, and see what sandwiches our passage. In verse 9 of chapter 1, it says, He must, this is again talking about elders, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then if we bridge over the chapter marker there, the verse immediately after our passage this morning, but as for you, that's Paul writing to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The antidote to the poison of false teaching is sound doctrine. It is gospel It is good news. This is why elders in a church need to be word-driven men. They need to be word-driven. They need to be bold, not arrogant. Remember, arrogant is disqualifying, but bold enough to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, to stand up to this false teaching and defend the church with it. Another story to illustrate this is a man named J.B. Lightfoot. He was a professor of divinity in Cambridge University in the 1800s. And and while he was there, uh, this anonymously published book was put out called Supernatural Religion. And it was full of this false teaching uh, that undermined the credibility of the church fathers, and it taught all sorts of false doctrine. And it was spreading like wildfire. It was going into edition after edition. And so what did Lightfoot do? Well, he started writing these essays, the series of essays that exposed this false doctrine, exposed the errors, and he did that by using scripture. And before these essays were even completed, uh, secondhand bookstores were full of this book, Supernatural Religion, because nobody wanted it anymore. J.B. Lightfoot confronted this false teaching with sound doctrine. Lightfoot rebuked and silenced this false teaching with, and I quote, patient investigation scrupulous fairness, generosity to an opponent, and above all, his all-absorbing motive of loyalty to Christ. He combated false teaching with sound doctrine. A lot of times we think of combating false teaching with just a screaming match. And it is an, there's an urgency here. There's a significance here. We've made that very clear, I hope. But this is how you confront sound, uh, false teaching. You confront it with sound doctrine. And this is the primary work of an elder, to be devoted to the word and to prayer. But this, I hope you hear clearly, is not just for elders. This is the responsibility of the whole church. In Galatians chapter 1, just a chapter earlier where Paul rebukes Peter, he says, if I come preaching another gospel, if I come uh, preaching uh, in a way that's out of step with the gospel, reject it, reject me. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through four, if you just turn your Bibles back a, a page, uh, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
the church is held accountable for the teaching that they sit under. And so one of the chief responsibilities of a church member is to guard the what and the who of the gospel. One of the chief responsibilities of church members is to guard the what and the who of the gospel. So what do I mean by that? The what of the gospel is exactly what we're talking about, guarding against this false teaching. Right, the statement of faith is not just a, uh, that we uh, adhere to as a church is not just a document that, you know, Alex and I thought of and, and you just tick the box. This is the response to be the whole church to guard the what of the gospel and also the who of the gospel. This is why we need to take great care in ensuring that the sheep who enter our fold are truly changed by the gospel. And I know that can be a hard thing to wrestle with because it feels like, oh, are we just creating an elitist social club? That's not it. It's to protect one another and to ensure that as a church we are not nullifying or invalidating the gospel. Titus is only 46 verses long. In our English Bibles, it's likely around 900 words long. Now, 900 words can sound like a lot, but I've probably used four times that many this morning. 900 words. And out of those 900 words, 200 of them are devoted to this important but difficult topic, the importance of sound doctrine and the confrontation of false doctrine. 200 out of 900 words. And that's not even the sections that expand on what the sound doctrine is. Just the importance of sound doctrine and the confrontation of false doctrine. Paul wanted Titus to know that this mattered very much. This is critical to being a healthy church. And we need to have the same aim as a church, to be a healthy church for God's glory, for our good, and for the good of those who have yet to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Because healthy churches are central to God's mission, and central to the mission is the message, and central to the message is the health of that message. We need to have a healthy teaching. We need to have sound doctrine. Because sound doctrine is the measuring stick that tells us what false teaching is. Remember, false teaching is not the gospel. It is not good news. Sound doctrine is the tool that we need to use to recognize false teachers. Are they preaching another gospel? Is their life uh, contrary to the gospel? And sound doctrine is what we need to silence and rebuke those who teach damning messages that sound like the truth. We need elders who will hold firm to the trustworthy word to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And we need Christians who desire to be a healthy church who know what false teaching is, who know who false teachers are, and they know what to do about it. Let's be that church. Let's pray.